Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry. We engage in conversation with colleagues and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Kelly Jo Hollingsworth, Assistant Professor of Elementary Music Education in the School of Music at Baylor University. In addition to her teaching in higher education, Dr. Hollingsworth has 17 years of teaching experience in early childhood and elementary school settings and worked with over 60 university students as lab students or interns in her classroom. Recently, Dr. Hollingsworth was recognized as outstanding faculty in teaching at Baylor, and we are delighted to have Dr. Hollingsworth on the show to discuss the pedagogy of music, teaching future teachers, helping students take notes, and what performing at Disney's Magic Kingdom has to do with teaching, and much more. All right, Kelly, Joe, Hollingsworth, thank you for joining the show today. You're so welcome. I'm excited to be here. Well, first off, I want to start by congratulating you on being named, awarded the Outstanding Faculty Award in Teaching in the Tenure Track Line. Is that how we distinguish that here? Yes. Yes. So I would love to just hear your thoughts about what that award means to you and especially like what it signals in your teaching, you think? Well, first, I'm very humbled to be recognized by my peers and students and the university in this way. I do think that this honor signifies that students and my colleagues and the university as a whole appreciate and value the artistry that is involved in teaching and in pedagogy. I identify as an educator more than than I do as a musician, and so this award confirms that teaching is what I am called to do, and I, I do. I, I, I'm very excited, and I'm very proud about that. In my opinion, teaching is an art. It does involve the combination of content knowledge and organizing and guiding instruction, but there's this bonus element of relationship-building skills and it's really artistry when you can make all of those work together seamlessly and other people think, oh, teaching is so easy. What do you think your students would say, or maybe you don't have to think, because we all get student course evaluations, but if your students were giving you an award like this, you know, what would they be recognizing out of it? Probably the free snacks and food. (laughs) Doesn't hurt. That I give them, that does help. Um, I think that they recognize, well, this is something I think that I underappreciate. They get more out of my teaching than I think that they do. And I I know I underestimate how much they're really learning and retaining. So that's part of, I guess, an internal issue. I just like, oh, it's just what I do. And I think everyone can teach when that's not really the truth. I do think that uh, my students would appreciate the energy and the enthusiasm that I bring into the classroom. I definitely learned that from being an elementary music teacher. Every day, every class is a new class. You can't carry 
yesterday or today's burdens with you. These students have paid for this opportunity here, and so they need the best of me, regardless if it's Friday at 3 o'clock or, you know, Tuesday, Thursday at 8 a.m. They deserve the very best that I have to give, and they've been holding out all week for this class. I also think my students appreciate the community that we create in our classes in the music ed world it's really easy to track yourself and be grouped as an instrumentalist or a vocalist but in it's in music ed it's really important that we all come together because we're all team music and we really want all as many students as possible to enjoy music and participate in music so part of my job is to build community among the subcultures within our class I think that the students also evaluate the, they would appreciate the fun that we have. It does seem like music is a lot of fun and games, and it is. However, it's building off of those activities and those opportunities to pull out the pedagogy and the metacognition actually involved in the reason why we do those things. So I, I think they would give me some good grades on those areas. One of the things that I'm starting to see, I think more, or maybe I'm just noticing it more in literature on teaching is teaching self-reflection and self-reflective mm -hmm. practices. So when you were talking about, you know, making sure that you're giving your best and giving your all to to the to each class, I wonder, do you have any any rituals, any routines, any kind of scheduling approaches to like getting in the right headspace to do that? I I do. I like I don't like to be rushed. So I like to get to my classroom early and set it up, get all the technology up, set up all the chairs. So I do have that routine. I arrive early. I my office hours start at 6:30 a.m. That's the so, first time I've ever heard that. Well, there's no class conflicts and I do have standing appointments starting at 7. Wow. I will see them at 6.30, but I do have some students who that's the only time they can meet. So yeah. that works out, mm -hmm. and I'm fine with that. So I do have those rituals. Um, I also, in the mornings, I don't really listen to a, a lot of music. I'm, I just have quiet mornings and get ready, and I stay in my head, and I review my PowerPoints, even though I've already made them. I yeah. review them and make sure I have all my supplies. So I have routines in that aspect of teaching. But I think in terms of coming to music every day or coming to class every day with a, a clean slate and a fresh mind, when I was in college, I worked my summers in Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom. And in my training, you know, when you're 18 and 19, you're just really influenced by what people say. And so Disney's like, well, this is the culture. This is the happiest place on earth. And people spend their entire life savings to come here for this one day that you're working. And I was in the Spectra Magic Parade at the time, and so there were two parades at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock p.m. And he's, and the person presenting said, you know, you're sure you're tired. You're in all this uh, costuming, and you're going through the parade, but you have to give equal energy at the 11 o'clock parade to the very last you know, guest that's at the very end of the parade because they were riding a ride during the nine o'clock parade and they barely caught the end of the parade and they deserve the best of you. So I really embrace that philosophy. And even in my 
elementary music teaching, I embrace that philosophy. And now it's just a habit. It becomes a habit pretty quickly when you've just, that's what you're used to. So I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm having this discussion with a musician, but what you're pointing out are some of the, some of the, the harmony between, no pun intended on that one, between performance and teaching. Mm-hmm. And we, I think we can mean that in like the best way, oh, yeah. like where we think of how what we're doing with our students in terms of giving them everything that we have in that moment and ensuring that they have the best experience for their learning, just like we would ensure for an audience the best experience for their entertainment or absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So coming from uh, several different kinds of teaching contexts, you know. Not every, I would dare say probably most faculty do not have uh, formal teaching experience in settings outside of higher ed before they come into higher ed to teach. So you've taught in elementary schools? Yes, I taught elementary music for 17 years, and then I've taught nothing in between, just, you know, age 3 to 10, and then I jumped to age 18 to 23. There's a whole lovely <laughs> range there that you've just missed. Yes, I, the stinky ones. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. They're, they have their own qualities at yes. that time, yes. Uh, so this, you know, a question that I always like to ask folks, because I love to talk with faculty who have K-12 teaching experience because they just, they, they bring a perspective that is, is distinct into their, into their teaching craft. So how do you compare your teaching now of college students to what you were doing with younger learners? There are definitely some similarities and there are differences. I think the big difference is the content. When I was an elementary music teacher, music was my content. However, at Baylor, pedagogy is my content. So in elementary music, there's a lot of what we call secret learning. You're building children's schema and you're building children's syntax for music. And after they've had lots of experiences through songs, games, chants, dances, movements, all playing instruments, all these things, then you're able to pull out and identify specific content concepts. However, in college teaching, I do, I have to model, there's just more metacognition and I have to model thinking aloud. So I'll be like, oh, teacher talk here for a moment. And I have to explain how and why I did what I'm doing so that I can connect with what I want the students to come away with. There's still a lot of active learning. We still do the music activities, songs, games, and chants. Of course, the college students, what would take elementary students multiple lessons to learn, the college students knock it out in like three minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is not a good representation of the real yeah, world. Yeah. However, we're going to keep going. And so I, I'm able to pull out those nuggets of pedagogy and why we do what we do. And here's the pedagogues that support this type of teaching and thinking and philosophy. I love that phrase, secret learning, and I've never heard that before. Is that something that is used, is that a phrase that's used a lot in your field? Well, it's a phrase that I invented, and I rub my hands together, and I call it secret learning, and I whisper it. And so 
I do. I use it in my class now because that's what elementary music is, is secret learning. But really, that's what college teaching is, too, and pedagogy. I'm just building a different type of schema, and it's building much more quickly than that of a child. So it doesn't need quite as much repetition. I can use different techniques. I can actually have reading and writing assignments. What? That's amazing. I can actually talk for more than two minutes on a topic with college students. So many lectures within the the classwork. So that's a nice change. I do, and I even like modeling the think aloud where I'm, okay, this is what I'm thinking and this is why I'm doing it. So I, I enjoy that process as well. Those are some of my favorite college teacher tricks. Yeah, well, I think even if you're not teaching other people to teach, this is a really good habit to be in because students students can't read our minds. And I think a lot of times we forget that, as silly as it kind of sounds, because especially because we're experts in our fields mm-hmm. and we make all these connections that that are so simple for us because of our expertise that it doesn't dawn on us, oh no, actually articulating those, the connections, and then wh- how that's translating to why I'm doing in, doing this in the classroom just helps students because they don't, they don't see it otherwise usually. You're right, they don't. So in my Intro to Music Ed class, I co-teach that with a colleague, and we that class is freshmen and sophomores, and the class is really about transitioning from having your student hat on to having your teacher hat on, and we practice... Why do you think your teacher's having you do this activity? With what methods and with what results is your teacher doing this? I, it does seem that college students in general are used to just information being given to them without the student having to connect the learning and the reasoning why. So that is, we do try to transition, take off your student hat, let's put our teacher hat on. Now, why do you think... We are not giving you a written assignment this weekend. Well, because it's present or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually they can get there. Just they yes. just need a little prompting, a little prodding to to think about what they've never been asked to think about before. Yes. So, since you've taught several years in different contexts, I'm curious about how you view your own kind of arc as a as a teacher. What has changed? What has developed? What are the things that you used to do that you thought were great (laughs) that you no longer do because they're not great or take that any way you want okay my very first well my very first teaching class so I had this little job at this elementary school and I had eight three-year-olds by myself for a 20-minute music class I have no siblings I really haven't been around kids other than student teaching I felt like I was drowning So I was definitely in a survival mode, and after that one class, I remember standing out. It was a cinder block hallway that was painted cream, and I thought, whew, my university training did not prepare me for that. I'm going to figure this out, and I'm going to teach people how to teach elementary music. So I set that as my goal just after that one 20-minute class, and I really... I learned a lot at that little school, and then I got my master's, so I went on, and I moved to a, a different town, and in that town, all the kindergartners went to one school, and I was their music teacher, so I had the honor of getting a lot of repetition. I had 26 classes, and I saw each class twice a week, so you're doing the same 
thing slowly building on each other 52 times a week. I got really good at transitions and pacing and not thinking about me, but really thinking about the students and having my eyes out in the classroom and anticipating behaviors or student digressions. And so that was where I really got my artistry together. And then I started to notice, you know, there there are some teachers who always have really questionable behaving students, but they're they're just really they're always good for this teacher. So I also started to pick up on classroom management cues. And that was when I learned what I say, how I act, and the words of affirmation as the students even are coming in the room. Oh, I see that smile today. Look at that. You got your hands down by your side. It's going to be a great day. By building, giving students the expect behavioral expectations yeah. ahead of time, it really helps with everything else. Once you figure out how to manage your classroom, everything's golden, really. You can, you can kind of sell anything. Teaching's all about marketing. Yeah. You know, you're selling your product. Mm-hmm. So I transitioned then to a new school in the district that was first through fifth grade. But it was really fun because I got I'd already had all those students in kindergarten. So I just got to see bigger versions of them. And it was at that time I started taking courses for my Ph.D. I've never been a full time grad student. I've always taught all the way through school. And that was when I really started to care about research because if the research shows that this method is better, then why am I doing it the old way? Yep. I need to change what I'm doing because this is better and someone has taken the time to do the study and multiple studies. So that was when I really started to implement research in my teaching and I really started to develop more research-based best practices. I had the practical Yeah. St- stuff by that point and I also found it intellectually challenging and it was a fun time because I was like oh I want to try this Mm -hmm. I'm gonna read this and and try this and my my students were they were really fun and did all the you know they they would comply and if it was a crash and burn it's okay they're like oh we'll, we'll try again okay yep just try things. Yeah, so they were very, they were very gracious, and I started to host more and more student teachers, and that was where I really found my joy, was investing in the student teacher that came into my classroom. So we would be together every day for six or seven weeks, and that was when I started to work on the teaching of the pedagogy of teaching. And it was nice because they could see the real students doing it. And then all I had to do was explain and they could make the connections. So that was where the next kind of stop on my journey. And I was pretty content. I had my PhD and I was just teaching elementary music. But every day during lunch, I would check for higher ed jobs. And I thought, maybe I'm getting a little, Yeah, yeah. maybe I'm ready for the next step. (laughs) itchy foot. (laughs) Yeah. So the job at Baylor posted and. I've been here ever since, and I really love it. I wanted to talk to you about the student teachers, and I don't know, do you think of that as, is it a mentorship role, or how, how, do you, how did you classify that kind of teaching? So it, it's a journey. The relationship starts out where the student teacher really thinks of you. It's like a small, if you think of a, a 
two letters. You have like the ST is really small for student teacher and then the MT for mentor teacher is really big. But over time, you build the relationship to where the student teacher stops thinking of themselves so much as a student and more as a teacher. Yeah. And you do, you mentor them, you you eat lunch with them and you they're eating lunch with the art teacher and the PE teacher. So they're surrounded by the teacher talk. You all teach the same students. And yep. It's like, oh, my goodness, I'm worried about this friend over here. You, you build this concern for your for the students at your school. And as a resource teacher, it's really nice because you teach everyone in the whole school. Mm-hmm. So it's different than just having your 20 or 23 that you know really well. I know them all really well for a long time. Yeah. So it's, it's a special thing. And over time, the teacher, the student teacher does start to see them themselves as as a real teacher, I was always careful in the beginning to introduce, I never introduced my student teachers as a student teacher to my class. I always said, this is my music teacher friend, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, because I wanted my student teacher from the beginning to see themselves as a teacher and as an equal in the classroom. And they were really, um, it was just really, a fun journey to watch them grow and bloom and make their own decisions about what to plan and, Oh, I'm going to do this and okay, let's try it. And then just bounce ideas off of me. They kind of came to their own. And on the last day of student teaching, I would always tell them, okay, now we're colleagues. So you can call me by my first name. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I can't do that. Like, yes, you can. It's a rite of passage. It is. We're we're equals now. The letters after the name, it doesn't matter yep. because we're we're still we're the same. I would imagine that that experience of mentoring student teachers in the classroom gives you plenty of anecdotes for when you're teaching the students in the college classroom now because they're on the other side of that experience, right? Mo- mostly they haven't yet right because the it's their classroom. last semester. Yeah, student teaching is their last semester. Mm-hmm. So yes. you could really say like, let me tell you what really happens and what really yes. it's not just what you're imagining. Yes. I do I do think that is something that helps me as a college professor in my field is that I have tremendous classroom experience and I've hosted over 60 students. Some have just been lab students, but you know, over 20 student teachers in my classroom. Mm-hmm. So I am able to better communicate with my students. Yeah. At Baylor. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of of seminary. When I went to seminary, like the professors that I thought that I soaked up the most from were the ones who were like, well, let me tell you what happened uh, in the congregation one time when the presidents took me by the elbow. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, your your eyes are just like, you know, they're just like silver dollars. So you're just trying to figure out like, oh, this is how it's actually going to happen. You know, like, I don't care if you have a Ph.D. Right. (laughs) Like, I want to know how the experience. Yes, that's right. So uh, I don't know if you remember much about this or if you're still doing this, but I do recall uh, coming across your project of creating note-taking templates for students. Is this something that you're still doing? So tell tell me how you got involved in this and and why you think this was an important development in your own teaching. Well, as as an elementary music teacher, you have to go to all the regular classroom PD and you think, okay, I'm going to have a good attitude about this. Maybe I'll learn something. Yeah. So I went to years of all this classroom PD. But now that I teach college, 
by George. I actually use it all. I'm like, what? I'm using the carousel. I'm using the graphic organizers. I'm using, I'm using all these things that I didn't get to use in the music classroom because we actually do have reading assignments and writing assignments and just a different type of content that we're trying to get across to our students. So I'm going to credit that elementary school required PD that I secretly didn't want to go to but chose to and have a good attitude about it. And so that was where I learned about Marzano and all of his high-yield strat- effective strategies. And so he, Marzano, has written even some books, and there's lots of just nice little summaries online if you need a refresher. But graphic organizers are a high-yield instructional strategy. So research shows that these specific strategies help your students learn and retain the ner- retain the learning. So graphic organizers help students identify similarities and differences. They help students summarize and they help students take notes. And this is because it reinforces effort and it provides some recognition. There's also the non-linguistic aspect. So if I ask my students a question of comparing and contrasting two music ed pedagogues, they're like, oh, that's on the circle page. They can exactly picture what page it is. Then all they have to do is find it in their notebook. So I, um, it also helps students learn to, I- to identify what is important, what is not important, what should I focus my attention on, what should I not focus my attention on. So it's really handy for lots of things. Selfishly, I also think it's fun to take notes when it's a bunch of different looking art on a page. You're like, ooh, all this is connected. What does this mean? So they can see the connection. It's not just one white ruled page after no. another after another. And it's not one T-chart or just yeah. one Venn diagram. There are, it's lots of webs, but I use different icons for the webs. That's the elementary teacher in me. And every page has a border. <laughs> that's just that's me for you. that's just me i don't recommend that for everyone but i'm like oh it takes two seconds well you're pointing out there something that that i often will speak with instructors about is that that our students are not yet to the point in in most cases where they're able to do that work of just dis, dis, discerning what is important mm-hmm. and what's not important that's exactly and right. you know i don't want to cast aspersions but I do think that a lot of times we think of college teaching like oh no they're in college they're supposed they're supposed to be able to do this work of figure out what's important and what's not important rather than thinking of it as this is the time when they learn how to do Mm, that skill mm -hmm. and so if whatever we can do to help them develop Mm -hmm. that skill and maybe I don't know do you do you take a progressive approach where where you pull back some of that and 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 see if they can do any of that work on their own in like you know, smaller doses? I I currently don't have the class time to. Yeah. So I have, thanks to the ATL, I've learned how to flip my classroom. Right. Dun, 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 dun. So they actually have digital lessons and PowerPoints where they fill in the notes for themselves. And then we talk about them in class and we play the activities and the games and then pull out all the pedagogy from that. So there's currently just not room for them to design their own graphic organizers. Now, in my Intro to Music Ed class, there are opportunities 
for students to draw their own, but they haven't had much experience as a group. If you think about the gradual release of responsibility of I do, we do, you do, we haven't done it as a group yet. So I don't anticipate those graphic organizers are, they're fine is what they are. They're, they're fine. But there are some that are better at it than others. Whereas if we would take the time to model that, model some graphic organizing yeah. ideas, it could be more beneficial. So that's definitely an area of growth. I do think in my elementary music class, toward the end, I can put in, I have the framework for the organizers, and the students do know what what information goes where. They're better able to discern. But as for them designing their own, I don't quite, I don't have an opportunity for that just yet. Well, is there something in your own teaching that you have not yet tried that beyond, uh, you know, what we were just talking about that you might want to expand? Is there yes. something that you're on your teaching yes. wish list? Music teachers in the classroom are outstanding informal assessors, and they are very poor formal assessors. Part of this is because, especially in secondary settings, music teachers have large classes. And so for each, to get an individual assessment from each person, that takes a long time. So I would like to improve in modeling. While I don't teach how to teach band or how to teach choir or orchestra, and elementary settings generally are smaller, I can do better at modeling how to formally assess efficiently and effectively where it doesn't take up much class time. So that is on my horizon. I always pick a goal for each year. So that's my next year goal. Great. Is to improve at that. So that way, when my students go into the classroom, they've seen it done. And then they have a model. So ultimately, it would be nice if I could model it for several weeks and then take turns and let the students try to mark their own. But that's it's going to take me a couple semesters to get that far down the road. It's fascinating how disciplines can factor into this because as you said, music music teachers are great at the informal. And I'm imagining, you know, especially in in small settings or like one-on-one -on -one lessons, it's just it's so natural to mm -hmm. say, "No, turn your finger this way or yes. blow like this on the right. you know, it just it, and yet, in so many other fields, it's the in, it's that very informal assessing that's really hard to do in a lot of other fields because I don't know because it's it's not like as performative that's or true. something like that. So uh, one of our colleagues here at at, at Baylor, who I've mentioned before, uh, Dr. Chris Rios, he's in the graduate school, but he's a, a, a trained uh, religion scholar, and and he used to be a middle school band instructor, and so he's given a presentation about you know what I learned about teaching from my band, yes. like you know how this applies in 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 higher ed, and and he he mentions like there was just th there's just this natural feedback loop in yes. in performance oriented disciplines where it's just so easy to you know go. Uh, you know, assess, more practice, reassess, mm -hmm. that that in other disciplines we have to really manufacture in a That's way. That's true. Um, so it's, I, I love bringing disciplines together to yeah. think about, you know, what are you, what's your discipline, what comes naturally in your discipline and right. how can we learn from that and vice versa? It's interesting too because elementary students, they, you can informally assess their performance, but you can informally 
assess their understanding because they're pretty they don't really have a filter with their face yeah. they'll just they'll yeah. give you the honest look but college students they it is it a poker face all the time so i never know do you understand Moving yeah, on. yeah 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 uh-huh yeah so and it so, is hard and to so then you have to assess. like actually think about well how am i gonna get some reliable <laughs> data to know can uh-huh. i move on or do i need to reteach right exactly yeah well, thank you for that perspective, and yes. thank you for coming on the show today. You're Kelly so Joe Hollingsworth, it was a pleasure having you on. Super fun. Our thanks again to Dr. Kelly Joe Hollingsworth for joining the show today. If you want to learn more about Marzano's high-yield instructional practices, check out our show notes at baylor.edu slash ATL slash podcast and scroll to Season 3. The best way to support our show and keep up with our conversations is to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.